Good morning. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11? This is a difficult passage. This passage is difficult for two reasons. One, it's going to talk about a custom, a head covering custom that we don't understand. We don't have enough context or history to be able to fully and rightly figure out what's happening. And the more that is the more that you know on this subject, the less you feel willing to say because you really realize how much more you don't know. So the actual, the custom is the example, which is head coverings in fellowship for women. That is at some level out of reach. So that's the first reason it's difficult. The second reason it's difficult is that it is charged, particularly in our current context. Uh, I mean, this is a teaching uh, towards primarily towards the women of a church. And um, it's different than the teaching that would fall on the man, and there's reasons for that difference. And so all of that really energizes a teaching like this. Uh, Concepts like submission, modesty, roles, these things are going to surface probably in your minds today. Um, I don't think they're the first order of the teaching. I think they're sort of second order implications. But that makes this difficult. And it's times like this that I'm very, very grateful for our habit of just preaching through the Bible. Can you imagine how much harder this would be if I just picked it? More to the point, I would have never picked it. Which is, the church is harmed in either fashion. So we're grateful. That when I mention that because if you're a guest or you don't regularly attend um, we have been walking, this is actually our second year to sort of work through 1 Corinthians. It's going to take us three years to do it. And we've been, uh, we're eight weeks in to just chapter by chapter in this, and this is what has been served to us. So I'm, I'm really trying to handle it as well as I can. Because it's difficult to teach and there's a lot of just historical, some historical gaps it's regularly been taught poorly in the church, has regularly been taught poorly in the church, or learned poorly. And I'm going to try to maybe, I'm doing my best to, to stay in the areas that I think we can confidently speak. Okay. Let me give you an example of uh, a principle that I think is at work here. In the church, we now have families where three generations of the family are present. So there, in this church, there could be um, a lady whose father is here and whose daughter is here. Or um, a man whose son and grandson is here. Three generations. And we can imagine that there are even some families here where there, in each of those three generations is a believer, a follower of Jesus. So that, let's just say in my case, my 
son is my brother in Christ, just as my father is my brother in Christ and my mother is my sister in Christ. In the same way that my daughter is the sister of her grandfather. You see that? There is, in Christ, we think of one another, and certainly Paul writes it, you know, sort of down-home church speaks this way a little bit maybe more than we're accustomed. Nonetheless, the reality is present, that there is, we refer to one another in Christ as though we have a mutual inheritance in him. That my father will not get more of God than I will get, or his grandchildren, because we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have a mutual, we're co-inheritors of the same great prize, the same great hope. And, and that, so to think of one another as brother and sister is an honoring way of saying before the Lord, we are all equally blessed in hope. And that way of thinking owes itself in some part to our future hope. We call one another brother and sister, not because we were made that way, because we weren't, but because of what God will ultimately do. Is that This can be a little bit um, a little bit spiritually complex for a second. What I'd like us to think about is to what degree of our Christian life is connected to redeeming the way we were made versus gaining something entirely new. To what degree is our Christian life now in the present connected to sort of God's creative work done in the past for us, redeeming, reconciling, restoring. You hear all of those? All of those words reflect on making something that has been made right again. Okay? As opposed to doing something entirely new. So I'll give you an example. My father might be my brother, but if my father told me to take out the trash... I would do it. I would not act as though my brother told me to take out the trash. Okay? In other words, the original, the original positions and relationships that existed still exist in the present. Even though I know that something is coming that's going to change things. Okay? To, today we're dealing with this. We're dealing with, and this may sound to you like advanced spiritualism. However, I will say, the church of Corinth was all about advanced spiritualism. They were like spirit, you know, the spirit 500 level church. They were, they were all about having moved on from the simple things of the faith to the really spiritual things of the faith. And this whole letter, this whole letter is trying to call them back out of their self-centered me-centered infatuation with spiritualism back to the basic tenets of the gospel which bear the fruit of love with one another. They're so busy being advanced that they're hardly being Christian. And this is one of the things, one of the kinds of thinking that's come into play. Uh, Let me just give you some examples to show you where we've been. We've spent probably four weeks on the subject of can 
What about eating food sacrificed to idols? And all of through that, right, Paul is dealing with their supposed spiritualism. They know that it's just meat. They know that an idol's nothing. And Paul says, yeah, for all that you know in the spirit, don't forget that you have to love your brother and be considered around your brother. And when I mean brother by that, I mean that kind of brother, right? The other person in Christ who's a co-inheritor. But this goes all the way back, by the way, to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 began a long list of grievances that Paul had to this overly spiritualistic church. In the fifth chapter, he starts with, it's actually reported to me that there's sexual immorality among you, the kind of which does not even take place among the Gentiles. Meaning, those outside the church are appalled at what they're hearing is going on inside the church. And he says, and here's the worst part about it, you are proud. Should you not be ashamed? See, somehow, in their spiritualism, they had gained a sense of arrogance about all the kinds of things that the, you could, in fact, take place in the flesh. I don't know exactly what it is. I can't presume to go all the way into the depths of it, but maybe it was something like, well, the, the size of the grace of the Lord expands when there's, the more the sin is present. I mean, it could be any number of sort of cattywampus, pseudo-sophisticated spiritual sophistry that they were just breeding, okay? That's the, that's the fifth chapter. The sixth chapter is, I'm actually hearing that one brother is suing another brother and that you're taking this outside of the church to the courts in town to have it adjudicated. He says, it doesn't matter who wins, you've lost. That in whatever your spiritualism is, you think that getting what you deserve trumps the peace of the church and the reputation of the body? He says, if it were me, I would have rather endured the injustice. The next subject that comes up is one of sexual immorality. And apparently in their spiritualism is this thought. The body has an appetite. The body needs to eat too, doesn't it? You know, like they're so spiritual that they've almost become disconnected from the body. Yeah, the body is this unfortunate thing and it has appetites and so... The sexuality of, of, of the body is really not something connected to the spirituality. And Paul comes in and says, no, your spirituality is intimately connected to the things you physically do. He's continually trying to pull down their hot air balloon and tie it off to the earth again. And then we get to the seventh chapter and it gets really interesting. In the seventh chapter, we find that there are men or women, we're not exactly sure whether it's men or women, but individuals who are married, who are in their spiritualism coming to reject their marriage and to reject the intimacy of the marriage on the pretense of being more spiritual. That's weird. How does that happen? How does a person sort of do the math to realize that the more spiritual I get, I will eventually reject my marriage? I think this is how it happened. This was sort of, uh, it was present when we talked about the seventh chapter, but this is a better time for it to come out. You know, at one point Jesus is questioned about the resurrection of the dead and marriage and all these sorts of things. And he says, don't you know that in the kingdom to come, Man will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Do you recall some, 
It's a paraphrase like that. He's speaking that in the future era, in the age to come, marriage is no longer significant. Or at least, and you or I, neither of us understand clearly what's coming, okay? So we have these dim little sentences. But it seems to be, that's not really the best way to talk about our future existence, is who's my husband, who's my wife, who are my children? It seems that maybe brother and sister is the better way to talk about it. And those are the words of Jesus. Says, we'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. That's interesting. You know, Paul himself writes on several occasions something that sounds like this. In Christ, there is neither Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, neither man nor woman. Now think about that. In, in the house of God in worship, the construct of Jew and Greek is being torn down so as to mean nothing. Right? The Lord, through his great mercy, destroyed the dividing barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that existed between the Jew and the Gentile so that they now can worship the Lord together. That construct, when we would gather, is no longer significant. It ought no longer play a role. In the same way as slave or free, in the house of God, in the family of God, the construct of slave or free has no place. It isn't a construct. The slave Christian is not below the free Christian. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So what about man and woman? Does that construct fall to the wayside? Some in the church thought so. I think some of the church thought about maybe some of the words of Jesus about in the future, in the eschaton is the word, in way in the future, in the fulfillment of God, if there really is no marriage, and if we really are advanced in our spirituality, why not, why do we not just start realizing what will be now? You see that? Pulling from the future as a way of realizing the kingdom. That's the question. Now, this may sound to you as like overly complicated or like... Who does this? Actually, this, this present theology is probably the driving theology behind uh, what is called feminist theology, which is a category. Is We look in the eschaton and we see that we don't see any significance in man and woman, so why not observe that now? Let's see how Paul deals with it. We are in the 11th chapter. And I will say, just as a word, I, I, you know, I, I, throughout the week I talked to my wife about it and she said, no, don't say that. Don't say that. Say that, but don't say that. Don't say that. So I've, I've gone through the ringer on this already. There's no possible way I can be appropriately sensitive to every sort of person. So just, I'm telling you, I'm trying, and then I'm going to just say it the best way I can. Okay. Just let's let the text of Scripture preach. The issue, before I dive in, the issue that is at stake here is how they worship together, how men and women worship together in the same space. And it seems that there's a custom that back in this day, the custom was that when the men worshiped, they did not cover their heads as a sign of honor before the Lord. Okay? But it seems as though the women were supposed to cover their heads 
as a sign of honor before the Lord. And Paul's entering in this. Why is it if we're the same? Why, it if, why is it if we're equal? Why is it if man and woman in the future is really not the, necessarily the sort of construct that we fully anticipate? Why is it that there would be any difference? And it sounds, it sounds from the teaching that some women were throwing off sort of definitional confines of what a woman is and saying, we worship like you worship. Okay, and that's what's at stake here. I'm going to read two, but my, my real emphasis is going to be three. So let me read these, verse two and verse three. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Here's verse three, so let's listen. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, some Bibles will not say the head of a wife is her husband, but say the head of a woman is her man, which is technically what is said there. The ESV, which I read to you from, it makes the choice here to use that word for woman as wife, primarily because of the possessive pronoun, her man. The head of every woman is her man. They would say, well, that's wife. But I want you to know that throughout this whole writing, it's going to go in and out of wife and woman. It's the same word every time. And I really think, actually, in their effort to be careful, they made it more complicated. This is not a teaching on marriage. This is a teaching on how we worship together. Um, So, he gives this picture, and this picture is one of head, the head, which is sort of a play, a word play here. He's talking to them about the issues of what they're supposed to do with their head, And he talks to them about who their spiritual head is. Okay, so he's, there's some style to this. Okay, so when when he says the head of every man is Christ, he's using head there as the source or the lordship or the headship, like a headmaster or like you might canoe up to the headwaters. The source of every man is Christ. And by the way, in that, and I should say this, this whole teaching is pushing sort of, it's, it talks about the man, but the whole teaching is aimed at correcting something, a, mis, a malpractice among some of the women in the church. And so it's heading there. So does, when Paul says the head of every man is Christ, we can assume that's every man and woman. Okay? So he's going to do a teaching that typically where he's going to say man, and then he's going to get to woman. It's because there is an additional reality for the woman. Not a different reality, an additional reality. So Paul says the head of every man is Christ. He is our source. He is our Lord. In him we live and move and have our being. In the same way, the head of the woman is the man. Why is that? Because he is her source. The woman was made... From the man. Do you remember this? In Genesis chapter 2, where did the Lord go to make the woman? To the side of the man. He didn't go somewhere else and grab some more dirt and sort of spit on his hands and weave a woman. He took out of the side of the man the substance by which the woman is made. She's made of the same substance. He is her source. And she is made for him. 
and not the other way around. They're of the same substance, but the woman was intended for the man. And this is what Paul's drawing attention to. Now, lest we get a snag here, right? Um, There's this another allusion that comes right behind it. It says, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that's an interesting statement for several reasons. One, because how do we think of Christ and God? Is Christ not also God? It's weird that the head of Christ is God because we know that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. We know that he's in very nature God. We know these things. In fact, do you notice, by the way, the curious way that it's, it's sort of out of order? Like if you think of those three statements, the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. I think, well, they're out of place. If I wanted to tell this in a sequential sort of way, I might have said God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Do you see that? That nice flow? He didn't do that. Or the other way around. The head of the woman is the man, the head of the man, every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. He didn't do that. He says the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and then he comes behind it with the head of Christ as God. And to which we say, well, wait a second. Jesus is God, isn't he? He's equal to God. I think what Paul's doing is after talking about the head of the woman is the man, lest we start, lest we think this is really about submission. I mean, there's other places in the Bible that teach other things, but lest we start heading in other directions, who's the boss, so to speak, right? He comes behind it with a parallel teaching about the Lord. Is Christ not the same substance as the Father? Just as though the woman is the same substance as the man? Is the woman not equally human as Jesus is not equally God? It's, it's sitting, it, it, he backdrops it to say, listen, don't think I'm saying what I'm not saying. Co-equal and yet an intended purpose, a unique and intended purpose. Jesus was presented to us so that we might know the Lord. Jesus is, his role as we understand and know him is for God. And that's, he shows that to us. Now, let me just say something here. Thus far, the teaching remains aloof, entirely aloof from context. Meaning, you, may not, you don't even need to know the custom right now because the teaching that we've given has nothing to do with the custom. The teaching is sort of transcendent theology. It's true every place and time and era and ethnicity. Right? You can't say, well, this was a long time ago. This was back then that this was true. It was way back then that it was true. It was back in the beginning that it was true. I mean, that's where he's reaching. He's not talking about something contextual. He's talking about something that transcends context to our creative intent of God. And it's worth noting that it's sort of aloof from context. And I think the teaching already has a certain sort of power. There's already a certain implication. Okay. Let's follow it now. Let's take this transcendent teaching into the custom. Let's look at four through six. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife 
who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, do you hear the play on words? A man should cover his head lest he dishonor his head. Okay? He should cover his nugget lest he dishonor his Lord. This, that's the rhythm here. That's what Paul's doing. Is he, or he, I'm sorry, the man should not cover his head, excuse me, lest he dishonor his head. Whereas the woman should cover her head lest she dishonor her head, which is a different head. Now, as for the custom, if you're saying, well, what's going on here? The truth is we don't really know. So no amount of scholarship resolves the mystery of exactly what's going on, but we don't really need to know what's going on. We simply need to know what Paul's relating to us. So Paul is giving us what we need to know to understand and he's building the argument based upon the rationale in verse 3. So we don't need to know, like, why was it customary for a man not to cover his head? Or why was it customary for a woman maybe to cover her head? Paul comes alongside of us and says, well, here's the reason. A man should not cover his head so that he does not bring dishonor to his head. And a woman, however, should cover her head lest she bring dishonor to her head. And he gives this sort of the flow of the argument. If she's not going to cover her head, then she should just go all the way and cut her hair off. Okay, once again, I don't know the depth of the custom there, but it sounds bad, right? It's obviously a negative, it's a negative thing. Let me ask you a question. When you read this, have you heard the word modesty? I haven't. Have you heard the word inequality? Because I haven't. In fact, what's really worth noting is the whole reason this teaching is coming up is because in the same room where the men are praying and prophesying, the women are there praying and prophesying. In other words, the men and women are, for all intents and purposes, Worshiping in an environment of equality before the Lord, as brother and sister before the Lord. And this is the very thing that's making it careful. How should this be done? Because, according to the rationale of Paul, we don't we don't anchor our identity entirely on a future reality that we don't understand. We still live mindful of how we were originally made. God is redeeming how we were made. That's his work in us. And it has to do with this honoring the headship. Now, I'm gonna, this is going to follow up with a little bit more spiritual rationale, okay? Verses 7, 8, 9. And then I have to read 10. When I read 10... You're not going to know what it's talking about, and I'll give you, you're in good company. I don't know what it's talking about, okay? I have no clue what Tim is saying. So 
It's beyond us. The nice thing about it is it's not a new teaching. It's a reinforcing of the earlier principles. So we don't really need to know what it's saying. You know, I wish I did, but I don't think we really need to know. But what I'm going to ask is, is that you don't bury your head in your study Bible to, well, maybe I can figure out what 10 said. Okay? You can't. And if your study Bible knows what 10 is, it's not a good study Bible. Okay? So it's a little bit impetuous then. Okay? So... Let's focus on the principle, which is in 7, 8, and 9. And, uh, but I'll read 10 just for fun. I wish I knew it. 7. Here's more rationale. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You see what I mean? So there is this ordering and this precedence. Man was made in the image and the glory of God. Now once again, the logic is passing through the man towards a teaching to the women. So it's not as though the woman wasn't made in the image and the glory of the Lord. It's that in addition to having been made in the image and the glory of God, woman was also made for the glory of man. There's an additional reality for the woman. And we know this, right? So when Paul says man was made in the image and glory of the Lord, he's thinking almost certainly of Genesis chapter one where God says God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we know that the woman is made in the image and the glory of God. But the woman is also made for the glory of man. How would we say this? This is the part where my wife kept saying, don't say it that way. Don't do that one either. And I have never really gotten to one that's entirely safe. (laughs) Let's just talk about it with us before the Lord. If we were made for the image and the glory of the Lord in a perfect state, right? In the sixth day before any sin was in the world, God made us in such a way that he can look down upon us and we reflect him back and give him glory, right? We're made. He can look down and we, unlike anything else in creation, reflect him his glory back at him. He made us that way. He made us so that he could look upon us and so that we could reflect ourselves so we could be seen by God. That's how he made us. In the same way, the woman was made that way for the man. Do you remember what Adam says when he wakes up and sees her? Behold, Behold, he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I will call her woman for she was taken out of man. He beholds her and he knows, unlike all the other animals, among the other animals, no suitable helper was found. But for her, she was, just to see her nose, she's for me. She was made for me. The reason... I want to say this, so I'm going to say it, but I'm going to say it in like I want to say it so that I don't get blamed for saying it. (laughs) I want to say God made the woman 
with the intention that the man would look upon her and be whole. Okay? The reason I've got to be careful about saying that is there's so much sexual brokenness in our world that I, this does not mean that was done in an environment before sin. And like, I don't want to cast a spirit in the room as though women need to be careful because men get to look at you. That, that's not of the Lord, right? We are all to aspire so that one day the things we sing are fully true and fully holy. But there is, if we can scratch and claw, notice the direction we're scratching and clawing, by the way. If we can scratch and claw back to the beginning, we can rightly understand the intention versus scratching and clawing to a future reality that we don't really understand and saying, well, men and women, are, they're the same in the future, so they're the same now. Paul says, no, they're not the same now. They were made very, they were made differently. And for the woman, there is an additional reality, which is God made her to be beheld by the man. So use care when you're worshiping together is his idea, is his thought. When you're worshiping together, when we come together, I'm not saying that we do do this. I'm saying we ought to do this. And we certainly should aspire to this. When we come before the Lord, the, our only objective should be, I mean, our chief objective should be to worship God, to be seen by him and for him to see us. This is the exchange. It's for us all together as brothers and as sisters of co-nature and co-equal, worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. And Paul is saying, women, remember, you have an additional reality. So be careful how you're seen. Be careful that that might not disrupt the fellowship's pursuit of seeing God only. Now, to be much more practical than that, I will, I will commend to the feminine genius of the Holy Spirit into the council of uh, some of the finest women in the world in this church and just mature Christians to sort of, how does that actually look? I think it touches on words like modesty. I think it touches on words like care. I do not think it touches on words like subordinate. What we see is if we have Paul's mind as he's had it throughout the book is he's saying it doesn't matter what you can do. It matters what you ought to do, mindful of who's around you. That, which we've seen in the fifth chapter, in the sixth chapter, in the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, now in the eleventh chapter, I still feel it's what's propelling us, is women, when you gather with the men in worship, be mindful of how you were made, because we've gathered to worship the Lord. I'm going to close with this final thought. Uh, well, let me, let me read a little bit more. Just because he does balance. In case, you don't, in case you don't, depending on how you're coming into Bible and teaching, you maybe don't feel that equality. Let me read 11, 12, and 13 for you here. Look at 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man and man of woman. See, he's, he's very careful to talk about keep equality in front of us in this. It's not about that. Verse 12, for as a woman was made, 
from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are made from God. It's about God. I think in the Bible, if you you walk through something that's just true in the Old Testament is how the fullness of God is never seen. We talk about the image and the glory of the Lord and how we're being made in the image of the glory of the Lord. It's worth noting that God is never really seen or fully described. He appears as images like a burning bush. He's never seen. He appears on the Ark of the Covenant. They build these two cherubim and in the middle was what they called the mercy seat, which was a vacant space. It was an empty space where the glory of the Lord would descend and manifest himself and yet it was never seen. Never could be seen. Even the Ark of the Covenant of God was never actually seen. When it would travel, the right artwork when the Ark is going around Jericho is that it's covered with seal cloth. Never seen. No one ever saw the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant was where the glory of the Lord was lived. God is unseeable, right? We were made so that he can look down and see us and receive glory, but we, we can't see the Lord. The, the, the Hebrew tradition was is to see God is to die. Moses wanted to see the Lord and all he saw was sort of the reflection of the back of God and that illuminated his face. He's indescribably invisible. He's so glorious. And in all of that glory, right, so that you might be able to worship the Lord, Jesus came as an infant in Bethlehem. That, to me, it shatters the paradigm. It's just, it's so amazing to think of all the things God's done so that you could know him. On his massive glory on his throne. If you read Revelation in the throne room in the fourth and fifth chapter and the throne rooms described, the, the lake and the elders and the creatures and the multitudes and the people and the trumpets and all the sound and sounds like that, right? All of these great things happening in the throne room of God and it describes the throne and the rainbow and it says in, in the midst of the throne of, was the glory of God. It doesn't describe a word of it. He's not seeable. Even the text of scripture cannot peer upon him. And yet Jesus was, right? This is the spirit of God in Corinthians. It's not how great we are. It's not how great God's made us. It's our ability and freedom in Christ to humble ourselves so that God might be seen. And he's saying this, do that. Like, particularly here to women, Lord, hear this right. You were made especially special in the mind and life of the man but you want to make God seeable. Do that. Let's pray, Lord. May we all do that in the right way, Lord. May we just have an open door of permissiveness to your Holy Spirit to speak. Lord, we do want concepts like modesty to prevail our lives, not just in our appearance, but throughout, Lord. May nothing be in the way of us and you as the world seeks to find you. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. Amen.